First Samuel, chapter 23, beginning in verse one. It says. Then they told David, saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keila, And they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel. Your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah de deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah. So he halted the expedition and David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he's very crafty. He's a slippery one, that David. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. 
Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and they went against the Philistines. So they called that place the rock of escape or literally Hamah Lekot in the Hebrew language. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of Engedi. In chapter 22, God guides David's steps. And in chapter 23, God guards David's life. David will triumph over his enemies. David will face the treachery of his friends. These are lessons. The triumph and the treachery. David has been put in God's school of hard knocks. He's pursuing an advanced degree. B.S.D.L.M. That's the backside of the desert like Moses. David is learning lessons. He's learning to lean on the Lord. And David is learning more and more what it means to trust in the Lord and what it means to live by faith. And the Lord has unfinished business with this man who would be king. And David will deliver Israel. He will establish a kingdom. He will become the father of a future famous son. You have to understand something in every age. And in every generation. God has a plan. And in every age and in every generation, Satan wants to thwart that plan. So I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Does God have a plan for you? The answer is yes. God has a beginning and a middle and an end of that plan. And because God has a plan for your life and because God has a reason for your life and because God has a ministry for your life and because God has a calling and a service for your life. Doesn't it make sense to you that Satan would want to thwart that plan? You see, the truth is. David. Needs to learn to trust the Lord and he needs to walk with the Lord. Satan wants to use Saul to thwart God's plan concerning David. But the Lord is mighty to save and David will seek the Lord in order to know the mind of God so that David can walk in protection and so that David can walk in victory. And so God calls you to walk with him. The Lord calls you to walk with the Lord Jesus so that you would know the mind of God and the heart of God concerning the plan that God has for you. And since the Lord has plans to use David to deliver Israel, then that means that God is going to deliver David. Let ask you another question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you needed to be rescued? It might be something simple. What came to my mind when I asked myself that question is breaking down in the middle of nowhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that that little place on the top of the hill. They call it Rat On. No, I know it's called Raton, but it's just Rat and On and Raton. And so between Santa Fe and Raton, there's pretty much nothing. It's the wilderness of northern New Mexico. And you know you're a long way from nowhere when AAA has to drive at least 100 miles to rescue you. We all experience times of hardship and misfortune. It can be as simple as your car breaking down in the middle of nowhere, or it can be as complex as your heart breaking down in the midst of some catastrophe. 
accident, assault, acts of violence, mental, emotional distress, financial difficulties. I don't know. We could make this list a very long list. Let me ask you a question. In the longest and the darkest night of your life, who held your hand? How will the Lord walk with us? How will the power of God deliver us? That's what this chapter is about. You see, David has entered into a high-stakes game of cat and mouse. Guess who's the cat? Now, that would be Saul. Guess who's the mouse? Oh, that would be David. David wrote about his experience in Psalm 34, 19. He said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Don't be shocked and don't be surprised when something happens in your life. David received protection for his family in chapter 22, but David still has to face hardship and persecution. But I need you to understand something that this hardship and this persecution isn't just hardship and persecution for hardship and persecution's sake. God is preparing David to sit on the throne of Israel and God is preparing you. Your life has been a series of complex preparations. The life that God has called you to live and the relationships that God has called you to have and the ministry that God has given to you. He has been in the process of preparing your heart for that ministry. All that we experience. Can God can use to accomplish his will, that's God's glory and to shape our character in service, that's our good. God can and does allow suffering in our lives. And if you live in a world where hardship and persecution and suffering aren't a part of your life, then you haven't done a careful reading of the New Testament. The Bible says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The question isn't whether or not we will experience sorrow and persecution. The real question is, will we allow the pain and will we allow the suffering and will we allow the injury to have God's perfect effect? In other words, will you allow it to grow you up? Will you allow it to mature you? David was a great soldier and a great leader. But even a great soldier and even a great leader and even a great worship leader and even a great writer and even a great man needs to know what it means to trust the Lord. You know, I think it's easy to pass the test when you're sitting on the throne. The real test isn't when you're sitting On top of the world, the real test comes when you're sitting in the wilderness. Warren Wiersbe, who writes on this particular subject, says, and I quote, Saul's persecution of David is an illustration of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. It also pictures Satan's persecution of the church today. Saul was not the king, yet he was reigning. David was the king, but he isn't on the throne. Satan seems to be reigning today, but Christ is king And one day he will take his rightful throne. Unquote. I like that because guess what? David's kitchen cabinet, or we might even say cave cabinet, is going to form the nucleus of his future kingdom. And like I've shared with you, God plans to use you to form his cabinet in his kingdom. So now we look again in verse one, then they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. The word means fortress. 
As a matter of fact, there's two mentions of this particular name in the Old Testament. One is the name of a man and a city, in the, and the, the other is a city. The, the man is a descendant of Caleb, of the family of Judah. And so this particular area is the area in which Keilah settled, and that's found in First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 9, 19. But it's also a fortified city on the lowland plain of the territory of Judah. Now, for those of you who have gone to Israel with me, this is uh, about 29 kilometers or about 18 miles south and west of Jerusalem. And so David receives the news that Keilah is under attack from the Philistines. And you've got to understand something. It's the time of the harvest. What time is the harvest? It's the now time, September, October. Um, It's the time when you bring in the sheaves. The Philistines, remember, are the sworn enemies of Israel. And David is the deliverer and protector of Israel, even though he's a hunted fugitive. And David has little food. He doesn't have any means of support. He has no food. He has no means of support. And yet the country is in a terrible crisis. When has it been in your life where you want to help the most? It's usually when you have the least to give, huh? Oh, I wish I was in a a different position. I wish I was in a different position so I could help more. Warren Wiersbe's fond of saying, when the child of God is in the will of God, he can expect the help of God. And I like that. When the child of God is in the will of God, He can expect the help of God. And in verse two, it it says, therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, look carefully again at verse two. David inquired of the Lord. Can I ask you just the most obvious question? How do you suppose he did that? What comes to your mind? He prayed. That's a very good guess. He prayed. Do you want to know the will of God in your life? Try praying. You don't have to call me on the radio and go, what's God's will for my life? Because hopefully my answer is going to be, I have no idea what God's will is for your life. I can give you broad generalities that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's it's God's will that you love one another. It's God's will that you pray for one another. It's God's will that you encourage one another. It's God's will that you manifest the gifts that you have towards one another. But if you want to know the specific will of God for your life, try praying. You know, we've heard throughout our study in the life of David that he's called the man after God's own heart. And one of the reasons why he's called the man after God's own heart is a willingness to pray in order to try and seek God's will. You know what prayer is? It isn't just simply talking to God. Prayer becomes in and of itself a declaration of dependence. The moment that you open your mouth and you say, Heavenly Father, you can, but I can't. Believe it or not, that honors God. It pleases God. God wants you to rely on him. God wants you to depend upon him. This might shock you, but your heavenly father might be really different from your earthly father. Why is it that you always call me when you're in need? But your heavenly father is always glad to hear from you. That could use a little help here. It's been such a long time since I've heard from you. How different from Saul. Who only asks of God in the most difficult of circumstances. And then he receives no answer because he's a man after the flesh. Who's completely out of touch with God. And you see, you may have been in a circumstance in your life where you have walked away from God and rebelled from God and distanced yourself from God and found yourself in difficult circumstances. And then you cry out to God. 
by all means do. Turn around and go in the direction that the Lord would have for you. David seeks God and he gets an answer. And David is assured that God wants him to go and fight against the Philistines. But David's men aren't so sure. And the reason they're not so sure is because they don't have David's faith. And they haven't heard the voice of the Lord. And see, this is why it's very different when you're talking to the Lord and the Lord is speaking to you concerning the plan and the purpose that he has for your life. And you talk to your unbelieving family and you talk to your unbelieving friends and you talk to the people who you surround yourself with. And they go, I think it's a bad idea. By the way, it shouldn't shock you or surprise you that if the, the world in which you live in and the friends in which you associate with, if they don't know the Lord and you say, you know, I've been thinking lately about trusting God and people will laugh. (laughs) What are you saying? No, I I think I'm going to live my life trusting the Lord. Are you some kind of freak? Well, you know, I've lived a great deal of my life trusting myself and that's not really working out so well for me. Fear grips their hearts and their eyes because there's only 600 of them and the Philistines have an army and they're looking out onto this unprotected plain and they wonder what's going to happen. And so David asks again and God assures David that he will deliver the Philistines into David's hands. Look at verse three. But David's men said to him, look, we're we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines than David inquired of the Lord once again? And the Lord answered him and said, get up, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. Notice what God says. I'm going to do this. Your men aren't going to do this and you're not going to do this. I am going to do this. And this becomes a picture that God is your source. It is the Lord who gives you the ability to trust him and love him and rely on him and cling to him. I'm going to ask you yet another question. What is God telling you to do? What is the Lord Telling you to do. I've had so many opportunities to ask people that question. Hey, what's the Lord telling you to do? And sometimes people honestly will say to me, I don't know. Other people will say, I haven't heard. Other people will say to me, the Lord is speaking to me about trusting him. And I'll say, how's that going for you? And they'll say, you know, I have trust issues. Really? Yeah, I have trust issues. And tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, people seem to let me down. But have you ever trusted a person who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good? Have you ever trusted a person who loves you so thoroughly and so completely? David seeks the Lord. And he gets an answer. God is the source of power. This isn't because of David's courage or even because of David's genius. And it certainly isn't because he has the support of his troops. It's the promise of God. It's the word of God. It's the power of God. It's the word of God and the power of God. And then the God who stands behind his word. If God is for David... This is a real simple question. If God is for David, who can be against him? It doesn't really matter. The New Testament says that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so the Lord tells David, I want you to get up and I want you to go. And look what it says. And David and his men went. To Keilah. 
And they fought with the Philistines in verse 5. And they struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And an ephod, of course, is that instrument that was worn by the priest, but it was also a kind of a communication device. David saves the day. Now, I want you to think about this. David saves the day. He prays, he listens, and he obeys. When you pray... And when you listen and when you obey, there's going to be deliverance. You know, it's very simple. It really is. And and it's going to come in forms that you may not be completely aware of at the beginning. You might pray and say, Lord, I want to do something special this year. And the Lord lays it on your heart to put together a Thanksgiving basket for a needy family. Well, you know, I don't have a great deal of resources. You know, how much resources does it take to put together one Thanksgiving basket for a needy family? Well, I can't even do that. Well, can you pray for that needy family? Can you come and volunteer to fill the basket, even though you might be in a difficult circumstance? And now all of a sudden, God begins to use you and you become the instrument of deliverance in another person's difficult circumstance. David saves the day. Where's God telling you to go? What is God telling you to do? Because you see, faith is believing and trusting in the Lord. Faith is believing and trusting in the Lord, not in the fear. It isn't believing in the fear and it isn't believing in the doubt and it isn't believing in the disappointment of others. Faith refuses to lean on others and desires to lean on the Lord. This is why the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And David wrote a little song. It was a taste of victory in the shelter of that city. And it's found in Psalm 31, verse 21, where it says, blessed be the Lord, because he's shown me his marvelous kindness. In a strong city. Now. Again, I want to remind you of something. The Philistines robbed the people at harvest time. When is harvest time? Well, literally, harvest time is the time when you gather the fruits and the vegetables that you have sown. And obviously, there are literal times of harvest, but there are also spiritual times of harvest. Remember what the Bible says. One person plants, another person waters, but it's God who gives the increase. We're in a literal time of harvest, but we're also in a spiritual time of harvest and the harvest are lives and the harvest are souls. The enemies of God want to rob the people of God of their precious portion. And think about it. When does the enemy show up? The enemy shows up to steal the grain and leave the chaff. The things that the children of God need in order to survive. You know, this becomes to me a perfect picture. Of the false man made religious systems, you know what false man made religious systems do? They encourage you to eat the chaff, the stalks. The broken stalks, not the real grain. Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven. But people want you to participate in religious systems that leave you empty and hollow and starving. Jesus is the real grain. Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven. 
David is in the wilderness and he is rejected and he is despised and he is opposed. And Jesus comes on the scene and he is rejected and he is despised and he is opposed. But David's faith is in God and David's dependence is on God. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come at the behest of his father and he declares to a watching world, I'm the bread that came down from heaven and I'm willing to satisfy you. Where there is faith and dependence, there's power for service and there's power to deliver the people of God from the people who want to rip us off. And you know what David does? He exercises bold courage in the face of opposition. He prays and he trusts the Lord But then in courage, he enters into the fight. David refuses to give in to the fear of others. And had David given in to the fear, the people of Keilah would starve. And when you give in to the fear, Your next door neighbor starves and your family starves and your unbelieving friends starve because you won't give them the bread that came down from heaven. You know, the world out there, they're starving. I know that sometimes you think if I talk about Jesus, people are going to think that I'm weird. They're going to think that I'm a Jesus freak. Good for you. You know what? Hungry people, when you give them bread, they're grateful. And people who are spiritually starving, when you give them real nourishment, they thank you. There are plenty of people willing to oppress you and mock you and abuse you and assault you and persecute you and even kill you. That becomes the very definition of the word enemy. A person who wants to harm you. But in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes and he says, speaking of the Lord God, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the power of his spirit in the inner person. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, for God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And look what it says in verse 7. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. It's his way of saying, ha ha, I finally trapped that little mouse. Now, it's a good thing that David trusts the Lord. Because the people of Keilah are about to betray David. By the way, when Jesus said to the watching multitudes, when he fed the multitudes with loaves and fishes, when when he walked among the people of the planet Earth, were they deeply grateful for all that he had done for them? No. You know, again, in all fairness to the people at Keilah. What happened in the earlier chapters? Was there a town called Nob where a guy named Doag slaughtered the whole village and they wiped the whole village out. They knew what it meant to face the wrath of Saul. They knew that by entering into friendship and fellowship with David, even though David had delivered them. that they ran a terrible risk and Saul speaks the language of the make believer He embraces God talk. God has delivered him into my hands. And later on, he'll use the same kind of God talk. You probably met people like that. Hey, I can talk God talk. Watch this. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen, brother. They know Christian words and Christian phrases. But clearly, Saul is disconnected from the God that he's talking about. 
David manages to avoid capture by staying vigilant and alert and by moving quickly from place to place. And the the episode illustrates how powerful prayer can be in the life of the believer. And it it says then Saul called all the people together for war and to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Think about this for a moment. Saul has his network of spies. But David also has his network of spies. Satan has his network of spies. But there is a powerful union and communion when the saints get together and they pray. The Lord will deliver David. Now, I want you to think about the irony here just for a moment. The people of Keilah, they're ready to hand David over in order to spare the city. And Saul is willing to destroy the city. If it means trapping David. Look what it says. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. You might pray a prayer. Lord, if I help this person out, will they spit in my face and stab me in the back? They will spit in your face. They will stab you in the back. Lord, are you sure you want me to help this person? You know what? It's really interesting to me. The revelation of the character and the heart of David begins to be manifest. David is willing to do for the people of God. Because they are the people of God. And again, David is willing to spare the city. Saul is willing to destroy the city if it means trapping David. Does this remind you of anyone that you know? Let me ask you a question. Isn't this sort of like the games that Satan plays with us? Question, does Satan want to destroy you? Yeah. Now, I want you to think this through. What is it about you that Satan so despises and so hates? Is it because of your incredible ministry? I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't because of your incredible ministry. Satan wants to destroy you because he wants to get to Jesus. He wants to hurt Jesus. He wants to harm Jesus. And if he can harm you, and if that means that will harm Jesus, he is willing to do that. Question. Have you ever met someone who is willing to betray Jesus in order to save their own skin? And you might, in a moment of honesty, say, wow, I've done things to dishonor and disgrace the Lord because I was fearful of what people might think. Or what people might say. And so what does David do? What does David do in the midst of betrayal? What does he do when someone is willing to stab him in the back and spit in his face? This becomes important for you because if you will learn this lesson, this will help you immeasurably. In the midst of pain and circumstance and depression and betrayal, David draws near the Lord. 
He cries out to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. What is it that we do when we are surrounded by fear and we're surrounded by betrayal and we're surrounded by by treachery? The priest comes in, the ephod, this priestly breastplate lost to Saul is now with David. And the ephod speaks of the faithfulness of God to his people. And the ephod speaks of God's love and his commitment to his people to see the people through to the end. Saul thinks that God has delivered David into his hand. But David stands before God. He stands before God fully accepted and fully loved by the father and Satan wants to hurt you and he wants to destroy you. But you stand before God fully accepted. Fully loved. In the person of Jesus Christ. And three times. David prays in deep humility. Three times David refers to himself as. Your servant, he says to the Lord, I am your servant. And you would, again, think the people of Keilah would be grateful and you would think that the people of Jerusalem would have been grateful to Jesus. And you think the whole world would have been grateful to Jesus because Jesus delivers them from death and hell. Is the world grateful to Jesus? Twice a year they are at Christmas and Easter. They'll sing some songs and they'll have some plays. They'll even put a few specials on TV and maybe even a little cover on a couple of magazines about the influence of Christianity on the earth. But I want to ask you a question. If you've watched TV lately, if you've listened to the radio lately, if you've logged in on the blog spots lately, do we live in a world that is absolutely teeming with gratitude because Jesus has delivered us from death and hell? What do you think the answer is? Pretty much no. But is there a group of people... Who stick close to David and David's son. (laughs) Well, David is beginning to look more and more like his future famous son. He would rather minister than be ministered to. And remember that. Because one day David will be king. And one day Jesus will be king. And along the way, David is willing to put himself in harm's way for God's people. And Jesus, along the way, was willing to put himself in harm in order to minister to God's people. Would it shock you or surprise you that if maybe the journey that God has for you and the plan that God has for you might Include putting yourself in a dangerous circumstance in order to honor God and please God. It might happen. By the way, many scholars believe that uh, David wrote Psalm 31 at this time in his life. As a matter of fact, if you just turn there really quickly to Psalm 31, it says it's a plea for God's protection to the chief musician. It says, in you, O Lord, I put my trust Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock. You are my fortress. Therefore, your namesake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. This is interesting. Saul has a spy network. David has a spy network. David cries out to God what he's heard about Saul. Saul comes to destroy the city because of David. And look what it says. In verse 12, then David said, will the men of Keilah 
deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord said, he will deliver you. Look at verse 13. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah. So he halted the expedition. In other words, David eludes Saul. And look what it says in verse 14. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hands. So remember his earlier declaration? Lord's delivered him into my hands. Mm, No. I don't know what God you're talking about, Saul. But it's not the God of the Bible. God kept Saul from finding David. By the way, if God places you in the Holy Spirit witness protection program, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to be found. One day, David heard that Saul was right on his heels and searching nearby. And David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph. Now, you got to understand something. This is a dry and barren place close to the Dead Sea. So, again, it's, it's, it's a place where hardly anything can survive. So what do we learn? Several things. Number one, prayer is a key concept for the person to lie. Desiring deliverance because God will deliver. And so here's the idea. When we face trial and we face tests and we face temptation and we say pray, some people think, well, that seems so religious. You know, such a religious thing to do. Well, it could be if that's all you're doing is just mouthing meaningless words to a deity that you don't even think is there. But if you're entering into full press court. You pray. God cares. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. You pray. He listens. You ask if he cares. And the answer is he does. You pray, whether it seems inconsequential or greatly consequential. Remember, Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 7, 7 said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, and he spoke a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray. And not to faint. When I ask people, did you pray? They go, look, I'm tired of praying. Tired. Jesus said, you ought to always pray. And don't give up. Now's not the time to give up. And look what it says. In verse 15, so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. In verse 16, David renews his fellowship and his friendship with Jonathan. And again, this is the last time the two friends will be together. It's a real time of refreshment for David. David has just returned from this fresh betrayal by the people of Keilah. And he's about to be betrayed by the Ziphites. And every day, every day, day after day, Jonathan's father is hounding him and hounding him and hounding him and seeking to kill him. But Jonathan's found a way to find his friend. And verse 16, by the way, is a wonderful expression in the original language when it says David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. The idea in the original language is Jonathan comes to David and in a real sense, Jonathan is placing David in God's hands in verse 17. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of my Saul, of Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father knows that. 
Now, this is interesting on so many different levels. Jonathan reassures David of God's plan and promises in David's life. He points to the joy and the glory in a coming kingdom that God will establish. Now, think about this. David, excuse me, Jonathan reminds David and he says, there's a real God and this real God has a real plan for you. And that plan for you includes that you will be the king. You know, his devotion is commendable. And then Jonathan says something that's just not true. He says, I will be with you. I don't think it's not true because he's purposely lying. I think that he wants it to be true. But Jonathan will die by his father's side. Because the only way that you're going to enter into David's kingdom is you need to be with David and you're going to need to follow David in David's suffering. And Jonathan, perhaps, perhaps if Jonathan had broken it off with his father, perhaps if he had broken it off with his father, he may have well followed David into David's kingdom. But that's not going to be the way that this is going to end. It reminds me of the story in the New Testament. You remember the story of Jesus' friend, John the Baptist? He's arrested and he's thrown into jail. And his heart is filled with sorrow and doubt. And He sends a messenger to Jesus and he says, are you really the one? Are you truly the Messiah? And Jesus says, you tell John the Baptist that the blind have their eyes open and the deaf hear and the lame dance and the poor have the gospel preached to them. For Jonathan, he does what God allows him to do. He strengthened his hand in God. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, Gibeah's Saul's headquarters, saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of hill of Hakila, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Ziph is the ancestral land of Judah, by the way. This is one of the kinsmen of David. And clearly their loyalty should have been to David. Unless you believe, unless you believe that government is thicker than blood. But sometimes the government can scare you. And confuse you. About where your loyalties lie. And there is going to be a time, perhaps, when you'll have to ask and answer the question, where does my loyalty really lie? Does it lie with the Lord Jesus Christ? David wrote Psalm 54 to record this particular time in his life. And I'm going to let you read that at your leisure. But the Ziphites go to Gibeah to seek the favor of Saul. And then in verse 21, it says, and Saul said, well, let me go back just a second here. In verse 19, it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul. Is David not hiding in the woods uh, in the hill of Hakila, which is on the south of Jeshimon? In verse 20, Now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Hey, we're going to turn David over to you. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. More God talk. Hey, God bless you. Is it possible that unbelievers can use God-like words in order to try and maybe identify? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. One way, dude. And in verse 21, it says, and Saul said, blessed are you. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him? Therefore, I am told he's very crafty. 
Well, you know, David is skilled at escaping from Saul. Saul accuses David of being crafty because David hasn't fallen prey to Saul's evil plans. But make no mistake about it. God is in control and God is in charge. And when you read, look what it says. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I'll go with you. And it shall be if he's in the land that I will search for him throughout all of the land of Judah. So they arose and they went to Zip before Saul. This is back in the wilderness. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain in the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David. David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain in verse 26. Pause. Saul is on one side of the rock. David is on the other side of the rock. And sometimes that's the only thing that's between you and Satan. It's the rock of Jesus Christ. Satan's on one side. You're on the other. And the enemy is pressing in. Trying to get to you. Trying to destroy your heart and disturb your heart and ruin your life and destroy your testimony and destroy your ministry. And there is Satan and he's pursuing hot and hard. And the only thing between you and him is this rock. I love this. Because sometimes the only thing keeping your enemies from destroying you is Jesus. In ancient times, God set a cloud between the children of God and Egypt. Law enforcement agencies pride themselves on always getting their man. And it looked like Saul was going to get David. But then an amazing thing happens. An enemy invasion stalls Saul's Efforts. But a messenger came to Saul in verse 27. Hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. This is what happens often in, in the life of the believer. Satan has bigger fish to fry than you. Oh, I almost had you. But now I've got to turn my evil intentions elsewhere. God has his ways of delivering at exactly the right moment. You see, God is in control. I want you to think just for a moment about God's grace in your life. Think about his awesome character. Think about his awesome power. Think about his ability to deliver. Think about what God has done for you in the past. Think about all of the times when Satan wanted to chew you up and spit you out and God delivered you. Oh, he may not have delivered you in the way that you wanted to be delivered. Do you think the three children in the fiery furnace said, "Okay, this is our way out, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And their response was, guess what? God's going to deliver us in the fiery furnace or God's going to take us in the fiery furnace. But either way, King Nebuchadnezzar, know this, that we're going to be delivered from you. And we're not going to bow. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And an angel of the Lord closes the mouth of the lion John the Baptist was delivered. But it wasn't in necessarily the way that he would have wanted. In times past, Jonathan's friendship preserved David's life. And then Saul tried to play pin the shepherd to the wall, you remember, with his, his trusty little spear. And David's quick reflexes saved his life. 
David escaped ambush when his wife lowered him through a window. And Saul's messengers tried to arrest David three times, but they were overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. And David is delivered from the hands of the men of Keilah by a messenger who delivers a warning. And this is why this rock became known as the rock of a thousand escapes. See what it says? Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place Hamah Lekot, the rock of a thousand escapes. What a, isn't that one of the great names of Jesus? Jesus, the rock who got me off the hook. Jesus, who got me out of this jam and who got me out of that jam. And Jesus, who delivered me some, from some pretty scary circumstances. You know, I read a story about a preacher on an evangelistic tour and he was invited to spend the night with some members of a local congregation and the family consisted of a father, a mother and a 12 year old boy. And as they all sat around the fire, the father began to tell of the circumstances surrounding the adoption of their only son, a youngster that they had aided a few years before. And he says, you know, this child was just a poor orphan when we first saw him, the man said. He was in rags and he was dirty and his shoes were the worst of all. The upper parts were in tatters. The soles had huge holes in them. And we immediately gave him a new pair of clothes and, and we decided to keep those battered shoes as a reminder of how bad off he really had been. I put him in a closet nearby and whenever our son complains or becomes unruly, I just take him out and help him remember how much we've done for him. And the preacher noticed that the lad looked hurt and ashamed and in fact, a bit unwanted. And careful to avoid offending his host and realizing he perhaps had a good motive in trying to make the youngster appreciate his blessings, the evangelist said nothing. Yet he recognized that always bringing up the grim past was disheartening to the boy. And he thought to himself, what a blessing that God has taken our sin and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. You might be thinking God is in heaven and he's always thinking about the wickedness and the perversion and the ugliness and the horror that used to be your life. And you would be wrong. The Lord sees the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the great rock of escape who delivered you from your sins. Jesus is the great rock that stands between you and your accuser. You know, in the closing moments of his life, Paul wrote, in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, he wrote, The Lord, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And the Lord, the rock, will rescue you from every evil attack. And the Lord... The rock will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are times in our lives where we need to be rescued, where we need to be delivered. And Lord, we thank you for the deliverance that comes in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He delivers us from our sin. And he delivers us from our guilt. And he delivers us from this wicked, wicked life. 
and he sets our feet on a rock and he promises us heaven. And Lord, we pray that we won't waste a single difficult time. But that we would use it to love you and to trust you. Because, Lord, we know that you have a plan for us. And that you will accomplish the plan that you have established for us because of Jesus. Lord, I know, I know, and I can say with, with, with certainty that it's your plan to take every child of yours to be with you and to walk with you throughout all of eternity. And nothing is going to thwart the plan. And so again, Lord, we commit our lives afresh to you. We thank you that we have the ultimate rock. The rock of escape. In Jesus' name, amen.